0: Thursday, the 29th of February, and welcome to Korea 24. I'm your host, Kwon jang The government is set to launch administrative and judicial proceedings from Friday against trainee doctors who have walked off their jobs in protest of the government's plan to increase the medical school admissions quota. We'll have more in news briefing shortly. Last week, the Yoon Song administration decided to keep the position of gender equality minister vacant to show its intent towards abolishing the ministry. We discuss this controversial decision for Weekly Take. And coming up, we have today Korea Book Club, where we look at a story that imagines the famed detective Sherlock Holmes living in modern-day Korea as a vampire. Let's begin Korea 24. Today, Thursday, is the deadline set by the government for protesting trainee doctors to return to work. About 9,000 trainee doctors have walked up their jobs in protest of the government's plan to increase the medical school admissions quota by more than 60%. Uh, With the deadline now ending, authorities are set to take steps to follow through with their warning of dishing out legal punishment. For more on this story and our other headlines from today, I'm joined in the studio by KBS World Radio News Editor Daniel Chen. Daniel, hello. Hello there, Jungle. Let's start with the consequences the trainee doctors face for refusing to return to work by the set deadline.
1: So, according to government officials, the health ministry plans to check up on the doctor's return until Thursday before verifying violations of the return to work order. They will launch administrative and judicial proceedings. The government is required by law to notify violators in advance the cause for the administrative action and its legal basis. So, the notice issued to the trainee doctors will likely state their violation of the Medical Services Act as reason for a license suspension. Second Vice Health Minister Park min su said the government will listen to the trainee doctor's positions before deciding whether explanations for collective action in protest of med school admissions quota hike are valid.
0: Now, while some 9,000 training doctors have refused to turn up to work, some have reportedly returned. A government official said that nearly 300 who walked off the job returned to work between Tuesday and Wednesday.
1: That's right. An official said on Thursday, the government's inspection of 100 major teaching hospitals showed as of 11 a.m. Wednesday, 294 training doctors returned to work, 24 at a hospital in the Seoul metropolitan area, 37 at a hospital in Seoul, and 66 at a hospital in the Jeolla region. It could be higher now since those who return to work Wednesday night are not yet tallied. The government and the top office believe the figure could rise after announcement of not returning by Thursday could lead to suspension of medical licenses and further legal action.
0: Meanwhile, there are a series of large-scale rallies expected in downtown Seoul this holiday weekend, including one involving the Korean Medical Association on Sunday. The police today announced that they would take strict measures against those who carry out any Illegal activities.
1: That's right. On Thursday, the National Police Agency held the situation review meeting chaired by Commissioner General Yunigen. They reviewed response measures with large numbers of protests expected during the March 1st Independence Movement Day holiday weekend. The Liberty Unification Party and a conservative church group will hold, and church, uh, conservative church group rather will hold rallies of two teams, 35,000 and 5,000 people in Seoul. On Sunday, the Korean Medical Association will hold the rally in protest of the med school quota hike plan with 25,000 people expected. Police will deploy some 8,000 officers and quickly take action to stop illegal activities that go beyond the scope of the right to assemble.
0: Let's turn to our other headlines next. Forum, Foreign Minister Cho and U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken held talks in Washington on Wednesday to discuss the need for close coordination between the two sides as well as among South Korea, the U.S. and Japan in preparation for possible North Korean provocations ahead of important upcoming elections. Can tell us more? So for Korea,
1: the April, general elections, and for the U.S., it's the presidential election in November, the first bilateral in-person meeting since Joe took office last month. The two sides believed to have discussed responses to the North's moves to redefine relations with South Korea and shared comments on the possibility of a summit between Pyongyang and Tokyo. Joe said the two nations are united in condemning North Korea's prov- provocative rhetoric and actions that violate UNSC resolutions, including its export of munitions and ballistic missiles to Russia. The minister stated Seoul and Washington stand together in support of Ukraine. They're united in condemning Houthi attacks and are working together to uphold navigational rights and freedoms in the Gulf of Aden. And next
0: month, Secretary Blinken will travel to South Korea to attend a meeting for the Summit for Democracy.
1: Now the foreign, min- uh, foreign Minister tae Teo said Blinken unveiled the plan during their talks in Washington on Wednesday. Blinken will attend a minister-level meeting in Seoul on March 18th to coordinate the agenda for the Summit for Democracy set for March 18th to 20th in Seoul. U.S. President Joe Biden will also participate virtually. South Korea and the U.S. will hold foreign ministers' talks for the second month in a row to discuss close coordination in North Korea policies. Meanwhile,
0: South Korea and the US
1: will reportedly begin talks in the near
0: future to negotiate a new defence cost-sharing deal, which will be applied from
1: 2026. So what do we know? So this is according to a senior official of the Seoul government on Wednesday. Talks should begin this year as the current deal expires in 2025. And the negotiation process usually takes over a year to complete. The special measures agreement is a cost-sharing agreement between the allies regarding the upkeep of some 28,500 U.S. forces Korea. In 2021, the 11th SMA concluded, covering the six-year period from 2020 to 2026. It's unusual to begin talks for a new deal two years before the expiration of the current agreement, though.
0: In other news, rival parties in South Korea on Thursday tentatively agreed on a bill aimed at redistricting before the April 10th general elections.
1: PPP floor leader Yoon Jaeog and DP floor leader Hong Yi Pyo reached an agreement at a meeting presided by National Assembly Speaker Kim Jin Pyo. Rival parties earlier agreed to maintain the current 10 seats in the North Chala province constituency by reducing the number of proportional representation seats by one to. 46. The two sides also tentatively agreed not to create Sokcho, Choron, Hwacheon, Yanggu, Inje and Korsan constituencies in Gangwon, that's around eight times the area of Seoul, and the Pocheon, Yoncheon, Gapyeong constituencies in northern Gyeonggi province, which is about four times the size of Seoul. The main opposition's push to unite and divide some of the districts in Busan was rejected by the ruling bloc.
0: Meanwhile, two Democratic Party lawmakers were indicted on Thursday on charges of being involved
1: in a cash-for-vote scandal during the DP's twenty twenty-one leadership election. So according to the Seoul Central District Prosecutor's Office, lawmakers Ho Jong sik and Im Jong sung were indicted without detention for allegedly violating the Political Parties Act with their role in that scandal. Prosecutors believe 20 lawmakers were involved, which centers on allegations that the campaign officials of former DP leader Song Young-kil handed out cash envelopes totaling 66 million won, or around over 49,000 U.S. dollars, to 20 sitting DP lawmakers and other party members ahead of the party's leadership election in May 2021. Ho and allegedly received 3 million won each from then-DP lawmaker Yun Kwan-seok. Yun, now an independent after defecting from DP, was sentenced to two years in prison last month after being convicted of handing out the envelopes on behalf of Song.
0: And finally, the Facebook founder and Meta CEO, Mark Zuckerberg, is visiting Korea at the moment. And on Thursday, he met with President Yoon Sang yeol Can you fill us in on what
1: they discussed during the meeting? According to Presidential Chief of Staff for Policy, Song Tae-yoon, the president said, South hopes to cooperate with Meta in R&D and fostering talent for the creation of a Metaverse ecosystem. The South Korean industry is prepared to actively support Meta's vision and plans. Yoon asked Zuckerberg to closely cooperate with South Korean businesses, leading the global market in memory semiconductors, an industry essential to the AI sector. He also requested Meta and other big tech platforms monitor the spread of false information, including the dissemination of AI-based Fake news. Zuckerberg on his part said his company determines whether a video content was created with AI through watermark technology and is cooperating with governments in efforts to prevent election interference.
0: That's all for our news briefing today, Daniel. Thank
1: you for those updates. Thank you so much for having me.
2: Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite stock price index slipped 9.93 points or 0.37% on Thursday to close at 2,642.36. The tech-heavy KOSDAQ also inched down 0.43 points or 0.05% to close at 862.96. On the foreign exchange, the local currency strengthened 2.11 against the U.S. dollar, closing the day at 1,331.51. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr.
0: We continue on to Global News Roundup, where we look beyond Korea to talk about headlines from around the world. Joining us in the studio for that, it is our KBS World Radio News Editor, Ku Hee-jin. hello. Hello,
2: jang
0: We begin once again in the Middle East. Latest tallies show that more than 30,000 people have been killed in Gaza since Israel's war with Hamas began in October. The somber figures come amid mounting pressure on Israel to agree to a ceasefire. Can you update us on the latest developments?
2: Well, BBC reports that Gaza's health ministry disclosed the bleak milestone on Thursday. The ministry does not distinguish between civilians and fighters, but has said in recent updates that around 70% of the casualties are women and children. Israel is facing mounting pressure globally to reach a ceasefire agreement in the conflict, as its bombings and ground campaigns have displaced the vast majority of Palestinians inside the Strip and created a dire humanitarian crisis. Israel, on the other hand, estimates around 10,000 Hamas fighters have been killed since the 7th of October when Israel declared war on the militant group. More than 1,200 people in Israel were killed during Hamas's attacks that day and more than 250 were kidnapped and taken hostage in Gaza.
0: Now, this also comes amid fears of further bloodshed in the southern city of Rafah. That's sheltering more than a million refugees at the moment.
2: Indeed. Israel has warned that its troops will expand military operations in Rafah if hostages are not returned by Ramadan, which is expected to begin on the 10th or 11th of March. Israel's uh, Western allies have grown increasingly concerned over its campaigns in Gaza, and this includes even its most important partner, the United States. Almost the entire population of 2.2 million in Gaza require food aid, according to the UN Food Programme, uh, World Food Programme that is. And it says one in six children under the age of two is acutely malnourished. And we've all seen horrific footage of refugees clamouring and fighting to get their hands on relief aid from airdropped packages because aid workers are barred from entering and also because they had to pull out due to security concerns for the aid workers themselves. While he stopped short of demanding that Israel stop its attacks, uh, President Joe Biden remarked earlier this month that the Israel troops conduct has been over the top. Biden said earlier this week, he hopes there will be a ceasefire agreement in the Hamas conflict uh, by next Monday, saying that uh, a deal was close, but not done yet. However, officials from Israel, Hamas and Qatar have cautioned against Biden's optimism, suggesting they will uh, still have a long way to go before an agreement.
0: Yes, well, we'll see if there are any major developments over the weekend. In the meantime, we turn next to former President Donald Trump and his numerous court hearings. And in a major development to one of those cases, the Supreme Court has said it will decide if Trump is immune from being prosecuted on charges of trying to overturn the 2020 election. What can you tell us?
2: Well, according to the BBC and CNN, the 6-3 Conservative uh, Majority Court decided on Wednesday to hear Trump's claims that he could be shielded from criminal liability. The court expedited the case and will hear arguments uh, on the week of April 22nd, the first time the court has weighed in on such a case. The U.S. Court of Appeals panel has already rejected his argument that he enjoys presidential immunity. He then appealed. The case to the Supreme Court and asked that uh, to put the decision on hold. And on his Truth uh, Social site, Trump uh, Trump welcomed. Uh, Wednesday's decision and contended that without immunity, presidents will always be concerned and even paralyzed by the prospect of wrongful prosecution and retaliation after they leave office. Meanwhile, the Supreme Court arguments could come while Trump is on trial in New York on criminal charges of falsifying business records as part of a cover-up to conceal hush money payments before the 2016 election. Now, Trump has pleaded not guilty to that uh, charge the decision pie, the uh, Supreme Court will allow him to argue for sweeping presidential immunity that, if granted, could undermine a slew of legal challenges he faces, and he will also be able to push off a trial likely for several weeks at least.
0: Well, we'll see what impact the potential ruling has on his illegal proceedings, as well as the primaries leading up to the November presidential elections. Mm -hmm. But finally, yesterday, we brought you news of a blaze that's ravaging Australia. Massive wildfires are sweeping across Texas in the US as well. The second largest uh, ever that the Lone Star State has seen in its history. Can you tell us more?
2: Well, according to ABC and CNBC, the explosive growth of the fires in Texas has slowed as winds and temperatures dipped, but the massive blaze has—it uh, was still untamed and threatening more death and destruction. And the fire at Smokehouse Creek, north of Amarillo, is the largest of several major fires still burning in the rural uh, panhandle section of the state. It has uh, charred 1,300 square miles, uh, which is equivalent to nearly thirty five hundred square kilometers and crossed into Oklahoma. even worse, firefighters have yet to make progress quelling it so far, containment stands at just three per cent. Authorities have not said what ignited the fires, but many attributed strong uh, strong winds, dry grass, and unseasonably warm temperatures. An 83-year-old grandmother is the only confirmed death so far, but with flames still menacing a wide area, authorities have yet to conduct a thorough search for victims or tally the numerous homes and other structures damaged or destroyed. Governor Greg Abbott issued a disaster declaration for 60 counties late Tuesday, and the declaration will hopefully ensure that the fire response uh, resources are quickly deployed to the impacted areas of the Texas Panhandle. We wrap it up there for
0: our global news roundup. Thank you, the first stories, Heejin.
2: Thank you.
3: I'm physicist Philip Kim of Harvard University, winner of the Benjamin Franklin Medal. We are now listening to Korea 24 on KBS World Radio.
0: Last week, President Yoon Sung-yeol accepted the resignation of gender equality minister Kim Hyun-suk. That was six months after she offered to step down following last summer's scout jamboree debacle. Then, soon after, the presidential office announced that it would be leaving the gender equality minister post-vacant as a way to express President Yoon's commitment to abolish the ministry, something he has pledged since his presidential campaign two years ago. His office stressed that there are two pending bills tabled by the ruling People Power Party pertaining to the ministry's abolishment, but they're being blocked by opposition lawmakers as they hold the majority in the National Assembly. To delve into this issue for this week's weekly take, we have two guests joining us on the line today. First, we have affiliate Professor Kim Byung Ju from the Hanguk University of Foreign Studies. Professor Kim, hello. Hello. And we also have with us this week Law Professor Cho Hee Kyung from Hong Kong University as well. Professor Cho, hello to you too. Hello. Professor Kim, can we start with you? Can you explain first for our listeners, from the point of view of the current administration, why they want to abolish the Ministry of Gender Equality and Family? What's the reasoning behind it?
3: Uh I do not think there has been official statement elaborating all the details about the reason for the uh, ab- abolition of that particular ministry uh, but we can find different sources for for instance I think it's kind of politically potentially flamboyant statement but uh, back in July 2022 I guess a few months after the uh, you know the Yoon government came in The PPP, People Power Party, uh, the floor leader, Kwon Song-dong, I think stated the following point. He said, the ministry was supposed to be uh, kind of ease and minimize the gender conflict. But however, ministry has been actually amplifying the gender conflict. And also it has been supporting some of the uh, feminist causes. And I think those are quite a strong argument there. As for President Yun, as far as I know, I may be wrong about this, but as far as I know, uh, I think what he expressed publicly was the statement that he put it on one of the online social media, where he just stated the the ministry uh, needs to be abolished. Just very one. Not it was not even a sentence. It was a clause. Uh, and also, the, the agenda itself has been originally, in my recollection, has been uh, promoted and pushed forward by Jeon Suk, the former party chief of uh, People Power Party, who has now left the party and created his own party. And for him, as a young politician, uh, he saw his followers among the young male voters and uh, he uh, s- thought there is a political gain to be made by amplifying the cause or this idea that young male voters have in mind young male voters in korea of course increasingly feel that uh, through the uh, you know these actions by the government and public policy kind of like a Korean style affirmative actions actual, uh, designed to promote women's rights, actually uh, men uh, have been losing out, uh, especially young men, and they have felt disadvantage and losses. And so uh, in that sense, Lee Jun-suk was appealing to these voters' sentiments. And so those were, I guess, kind of dynamics behind uh, overall, uh, this you know the, the the way this case has been uh, unfolding. And Professor Kim, do you agree with the administration's
0: push to abolish the ministry?
3: I do agree with it. I do agree with it for several reasons. Number one, uh, Ministry of Gender Equality—the name itself—you uh, know, the ministry that supports the interest of. Uh, Half of the population, uh, I don't think it's natural to have a ministry that's designed to promote interest of half of the population uh, because government itself exists in order to promote the interest of everybody, the, the entire Korean people. So, uh, you know, that itself from the beginning uh, is not so natural in my own view. And also women's rights and promotion for, uh, you know, women's rights here in Korea. In my own view, based on my experience, we have achieved considerable uh, improvement over the past several decades. And progress has been quite good. I do recognize with all sincerity, with all seriousness, this is indeed half a glass, half full or half empty question. However, there is a uh, perspective. Uh, I, I do recognize there is opposite perspective, but there there is a perspective existing on, on my side that sees that Korea has achieved considerably in terms of promoting, uh, you know, gender equality over the past several uh, decades. And uh, lastly, the mindset of uh, government can do everything. That kind of mindset, I think it's something that we have to uh, kind of de- uh, part away with or leave behind in our past. Because these days, even to these days, I know Korean opinion leaders, when there's a problem, they say, we need a government ministry to address this. We need, quote unquote, control tower to address this. Uh, That's very, in my own view, I will dare to say it's a lazy thinking that if you create a ministry, if you create a government agency, you can address problem. Uh, it's not usually. Based on my own experience of working inside the government, government does not always have these kind of solutions, especially this, this huge issue of achieving uh, gender equality, so-called. Uh, ministry existing for that huge cause, it's just uh, unnatural. And it's something that the entire government has to work on in various aspects of this issue, rather than trying to keep the ministry that's called Ministry of Gender e- uh, equality. And there's a Ministry of Gender Equality and Family side of the name existing as well. But this family related businesses uh, can be dealt with through by the Ministry of Welfare and Ministry of Education and by many different ministries. So that's why I support the cause of abolishing the ministry.
0: Professor Chow, what's your take on the government's push to abolish the Gender Equality Ministry?
4: So I remember the origin of uh, this. Push to abolish the um, Ministry of Gender Equality slightly differently. Professor Kim quote uh, sort of gave a three uh, set of streams and three characters, uh, Kwon Song Dong, Yun Song Yol, and Yi Jun Suk. But I clearly remember that this was a, one of those seven character non policy campaign promise that had Lee Jun Suk's fingerprints all over it. You know, he, he had just sort of put up. Uh, on his social media um, account, this seven character abolish gender equality ministry. And it was a classic example of dog whistle politics that he's still practicing uh, right now in, in his breakaway new party as well. But why is the government uh, pushing for it now, six months after the minister actually tendered her resignation? I think it's very much related to the upcoming general election uh, in two ways. One is to try to appeal once again to uh, the voter base, uh, the conservative voter base, and especially to the young, younger male voters to whom this particular uh, campaign promise had actually appealed greatly. And secondly, I think, Uh, because uh, in the last few weeks, the Conservative Party's um, nomination process has been going much better than the opposition parties, and they're actually climbing in polls in terms of approval rating by people. Uh, There's some sort of hopeful or wishful kind of projection of gaining a majority in the general election. And so they might be thinking that they will actually be able to Uh, push the amendment to the legislation uh, for the the Government uh, Structure Act so that they can actually abolish this ministry. But as to whether it's advisable, now I take on Professor Kim's point that things have improved for the female population in Korea and that he doesn't agree with having one p- particular ministry for a, a certain portion or section of the population. But if that were the case, why did the president actually upgrade the Veterans Affairs Agency to the ministry level if uh, you know it is not advisable to have uh, a ministry taking care of a particular section of the population? And certainly... Uh, Ministry of Gender Equality, um, the Korean name is Ministry of Women and it seems on surface as if they are doing mostly uh, catering to the needs of women. But in fact, they spend much more of their budget on uh, teenagers, uh, the elderly and actually migrants. Um, And when you think about the fact that veterans affairs is actually almost exclusively male oriented, the target population, uh, where is the greater inequality? And I also don't really agree with uh, the purpose that Professor Kim described of the ministry, which is to reduce gender conflict. That's not the purpose of the uh, gender equality ministry. The ministry's purpose is to improve gender equality not to reduce conflict in the process of reducing equality I'm sorry improving equality there may actually be an increase in conflict because of the threat that uh, the currently privileged group might feel as a result Uh, but you know you have to actually remember what's the purpose of the ministry and the current situation of gender equality in Korea is still woeful You know, we pay lip service to gender equality, but it often, so often becomes a political football and just gets served uh, as an appetizer to electioneering campaigns. You know, we still have some 30 to 40% gap between women and men's uh, wages for doing the same job. Uh, Far greater uh, females end up in poverty in their Uh, later years, they do four or five times more domestic work. Uh, They do far more unpaid labor, such as caring for older relatives, including their parents. Also, they typically are employed in much less paying jobs uh, Mm. and jobs that do not have any benefits like pension, insurance, health, uh, annual leave, etc., the lost earning and opportunity cost over their lifetime is just so uh, significant that you have to have uh, particular policies directed to address these problems.
0: Professor Kim, briefly, what do you make of some of the points that Professor Troy has made there?
3: Well, once again, I guess this is a question of uh, glass half uh, empty and half full. And, uh, you know, different people can, and different segments of the population can have different uh, views. I think uh, veterans affair, for example, is a uh, is an issue, set of issues that the government needs to focus on. I don't necessarily agree with the cause of creating a separate ministry and agency for veterans affairs, whatever upgrading it and stuff like that, because I just don't believe in creating new bodies, agencies, adding more things, uh, no matter what, whatever issue it will be, uh, rather than broad, general, national defense, diplomacy, uh, public water, safety, environment, industry, uh, finance. Other than those big uh, issues, adding specific agencies for special groups and special segments of the society itself is something that I don't support. And so, uh, therefore, if we believe we we need a ministry for half of the population, uh, I would like to ask questions about what do we do about seniors, what about the people with physical challenges, and what about people with low income? Uh, so I really just don't think, uh, you know, maintaining, creating or maintaining a or agency for a specific segment of the population is a way to go here.
0: Well, in the meantime, with the minister's post-vacant, the vice minister, Shin Young suk is filling in as acting minister and she is expected to proceed with preparations to transfer the ministry's tasks to other ministries, such as the Health and Welfare Ministry, once it's abolished. That, of course, depends on the results of the elections and whether there are enough lawmakers in the next National Assembly to support a related bill and pass it. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, Professor Chaw, can the administration start actually transferring tasks to other ministries? And do you think those ministries will be able to take over these tasks properly? And also, if another ministry can take over the tasks and perhaps some of the missions of the existing ministry, will it be necessary to abolish the gender equality ministry as well?
4: So this is the problem, you know, we haven't really had a blueprint as to how the uh, the current work that's been done by the Ministry of General Equality is going to actually be taken over by other ministries. And it's not just one agency or one ministry that can actually take, take over all, all the tasks. And we once again go back to the reason why this particular ministry was created, because it wasn't sufficient to have these bits and pieces uh dispersed among various different ministries without a coherent policy and plan and also uh, somebody at a ministerial level who could oversee and uh, at these things and coordinate and also have the, the nows and wherewithal and control and power to direct things and this is the reason why uh, gender equality ministry was created but for the lifetime of the ministry it had the smallest budget uh, within the the government uh, and it was never really given the, the proper resources to actually be able to do the things that it needed to do now uh, various ministries including labor health ministry education ministry even finance ministry will need to be involved in uh, to actually take over the various tasks that the Gender Equality Ministry has been carrying out. But if they already start uh, dispersing these um, tasks out to other ministries, it will be technically in breach of the existing government structure law. So I don't know how they're going to get around that, um, if they're going to actually act on it already. Although I doubt that they will start doing this. I mean, I... uh, My guess is that they won't actually start doing anything realistic uh, until before the general election. They will simply have the vice minister continue to act as acting minister and not really do uh, much at all.
0: We only have a couple of minutes, but Professor Kim, uh, how do you think this situation uh, should be resolved? What does the administration have to do and how does the ruling opposition parties how do they uh, try to resolve this matter as well because it is after all uh, something that needs uh, the abolishment of the ministry is something that needs to be agreed upon at the National Assembly
3: level as well. Right exactly Uh, you know resolving at the level of National Assembly I really don't have an answer and how this can be done because I I do recognize there's a fundamental disagreement in terms of perspective in looking at this issue from both uh, parties Uh, you know, ruling party having completely opposite view and then, you know, opposition party that actually dominates the the legislature. They have a different view here. So maybe, uh, you know, this is something that needs to be resolved after the general election. Uh, And if uh, after the general election, the same, the same kind of balance that we see today, meaning that uh, DP dominate, continue to dominate the legislature and then PPP uh, continue, continue to remain as a, Uh, minority party, Uh, I don't don't have an answer in terms of how to resolve this situation altogether. But the thing is, uh, one thing that I know is over the years, I have advised this Ministry of Gender, Equality, and Family before I have worked with them. I know the the members, uh, the government officials who are working in the ministry. What's clear to me is that this ministry over the years have been looking for job to do, uh, work to do. And uh, uh, so, uh, one way or another, uh, I just hope that lawmakers, uh, along with the government officials of the current union administration, as they do, uh, recognize that uh, you know, when there's a ministry that continues to look for jobs to do, tasks to do to, do to justify its existence, uh, action needs to be taken. And I just certainly hope that lawmakers on the, the other side, uh, the opposition party, Democratic Party, if they remain in power after the general election, Uh, they recognize this fact and then promote the cause of efficiency for the cause of the people.
0: And Professor Chua, how do you think this situation will play out looking at the elections and beyond?
4: Well, it will depend very much on the result of the election, whether the opposition party uh, wins majority or whether the ruling party wins majority or whether neither, if uh, neither party actually wins majority, that will be an interesting situation. But both parties pay lip service and say that they are advocating gender equality, they support women's rights, but I would like to actually see them take action and, you know, uh, put it into practice. Some 80 countries around the world have a kind of quota for female leadership, particularly political leadership, including things like uh, requiring parties to put equal number of female and male candidates on ballot paper. I would like to see some sort of something like this real practical policy stuff and actual you know actionable items uh, being uh, proposed and put into practice by political parties
0: well we'll wait to see the results of the elections in april and see what that will mean for the future of the ministry as well for today we leave it there we've been speaking to professor kim byung-ju from the hangout university of foreign studies and professor Chu hee from hongik university as always thank you for your considered thoughts. Thank you. Thank you very
5: much.
0: It's time now for Career Book Club, our weekly segment where we delve into the world of career literature and books through works in translation and beyond. This week, it is our special monthly edition of The Club, where we introduce more recent bestsellers or notable works in Korea that have not yet been translated to get a better sense of the local literary scene today. And for that, we have a new contributor joining our show. I'm delighted to welcome book reviewer Colin Marshall to the show. Colin, hello and welcome. It's great to have you with us. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here.
5: Seeing as it's your first time on the show, can you... Briefly tell listeners a little bit about yourself. Yes, well, I suppose we're here in Korea, so the most relevant fact is I'm American. I'm not Korean. I moved here eight years ago. I moved here from Los Angeles' Koreatown, in fact, uh, so I got a little bit of grounding in Korean culture before I came. But you could say I'm a cultural essayist. I write about books, of course, but also film. Uh, I write about cities, uh, all kinds of things. But I have a, uh, a book coming out in Korean this month called Hanguk Yoyak Gumji. And I do a podcast as well in Korean called Koline Hanguk, or Collins Korea, you could say.
0: Right. So it's very impressive that you are doing all this work in Korean, especially your podcast and a book coming out, 한국 요약금지. How do we
5: translate that? Oh boy, that's not an easy one, is it? I mean, don't <laughs> summarize Korea? It's forbidden to summarize Korea? I don't know. Do you have any better ideas than that? Uh, I wasn't sure, but it's essentially, you. I think
0: you're trying to say that it's Korea is too complex to be summarized easily. Is that it's. I in- hope
5: so. I mean, that was a title suggested by the publisher. Uh, so I okay, wrote the essays for them and they came up with the title because as a foreigner, I don't know if I have a great sense of Korean titles and what a book Mm. needs to sell in the Korean market. But they do. So I left it up to them. And I like the title, actually. It's because I never would have been able to think of it myself. (laughs) But, you know, yeah, don't summarize Korea because so much writing about Korea by foreigners or oftentimes by Koreans is just too... Korea is this, Korea is yeah. that, Korea is the country of this or that, or this, this is why Korea is great, this is why Korea is bad. You know, there's just too much of that. And I think the publisher liked that I don't do that.
0: <laughs> well, we're delighted to have you on board. I'm very curious about what you will be introducing us to this segment in the months to
5: come. Thank you. Okay, so let's get started. What book have you brought in for us today? Well, it's a quick, entertaining read. It's a new novel by a very prolific writer, Jong myung So. And it's got a title that I doubt anyone could hear without being at least a little bit intrigued. Vampire Sherlock, or as it also says in English on the cover, Vampire Sherlock. Okay, so that's Sherlock as in... Sherlock Holmes, right? The very same. The very same. Uh, Nearly a century and a half after Arthur Conan Doyle created him, Sherlock Holmes undoubtedly remains the most famous fictional detective in the whole world, Mm. even if you just hear his first name. I mean, his image comes so vividly to mind with the pipe and the deerstalker hat and the tweed cape and everything. But that's not quite the way he looks in this book, not the way he's described. (laughs) Here, he takes the form of an English teacher and every day... Uh, foreign English teacher in a Shindoshi or new town called Yurim fictional place but it's a real role that of the English teacher an English teacher yes. here in present day
0: Korea okay you're right. right I am very intrigued so the book is a Sherlock
5: Holmes story but one that place takes place here in Korea here in modern day Korea if you can believe that um, half the interest of Vimpa Sherlock is seeing just how the author manages to transport Sherlock Holmes from Victorian London to a modern day Korean suburb and in fact he also brings here a real-life figure from 19th century England not a fictional character the real-life Jack the Ripper uh, the serial killer right, whose okay. crimes remain unsolved still today And even though Jack the Ripper was making headlines in the very same period, the first Sherlock Holmes stories were published, Arthur Conan Doyle never actually had his creation encounter Jack the Ripper or any character like him. Mm. But that's actually inspired generations of fans, or Sherlockians as they call themselves, to write their own Sherlock Holmes stories with Jack the Ripper as the villain. Right, so I take it that uh, Jung Myung-sep, the writer, is a Sherlockian himself. Oh, very much so. Uh, his business card has, has a silhouette of Sherlock, instantly recognizable, right there on it. And a few years ago, he actually co-wrote a book with a law scholar, yu Sol, examining in detail all the forensic science involved in the original Sherlock Holmes stories. Now, Vampire Sherlock is a much less weighty book, as you can imagine, but it's no less grounded in familiarity with Arthur Conan Doyle's work. And it has these protagonists, a couple of high school girls named Sehi and Hiri, who are Sherlockians themselves and they're plunged into a mystery of their own, and they make frequent references to the details of Sherlock Holmes' cases from stories and novels like A Scandal in Bohemia or The Hound of the Baskervilles. And each time they do, the author provides an explanatory footnote to help readers unfamiliar with the Sherlock Holmes canon understand the context, and no doubt to make some of them want to go seek out the originals themselves. Wow, so we can see a real affection for the original Sherlock Holmes stories by the
0: Author, then, especially I think in Korea, although everyone's familiar with the character, uh, they might not have read the book themselves. I think right. a lot of uh, people they might have seen some of the films or the TV series, uh, but yes, the film, the books themselves might not be familiar. So I think that would be very helpful for uh, Korean readers and to pique their interest as well. But the thing is, I'm sure all our listeners are wondering hmm. at the moment where does the vampire
5: come in? Yes, well, get ready for this. Sherlock is the vampire. Or rather, he's one of the vampires. Jack the Ripper (laughs) is the other one. And the novel opens in the London of 1888, the year of Jack the Ripper's killing spree. And in it, Sherlock Holmes nearly corners Jack the Ripper. But Jack the Ripper manages to bite him and escape. So as Jong Myung-sop imagines it, Jack the Ripper was a vampire. And since vampires have to drink blood to live, it would provide some motivation for the murders he committed. But as we all know, if you get bitten by a vampire, you turn into a vampire yourself, Mm. which is what happens to Sherlock and explains how he survives into the 2020s, since vampires are immortal. Okay, so both Sherlock and Jack the Ripper are vampires. Both vampires, both here in Korea. Both, Yeah, it's quite the twist, quite
0: a crossing of the streams in genres, Indeed. Uh, just thinking about that. But then, as you said, not only that, they're here in Korea. What are they doing here in Korea, posing uh, well, with Sherlock as an English
5: teacher? Well, given that they can live forever, it makes sense that vampires would have to keep moving from place to place in order to avoid detection. They don't age. And when that vampire is also a figure as well-known as Sherlock Holmes, he really has to stay on the go so as not to be recognized. As Jung Myung-sop tells the story, Sherlock Holmes' pursuit of Jack the Ripper has continued for more than 130 years over various countries on different continents, and it's here in Korea that he stages their ultimate showdown. Okay, and my questions keep coming. So Jack the Ripper has been living in Korea too? You could say he's been hiding in plain sight. In, In Vampire Sherlock, he runs one of those essential institutions of modern Korean life, or at least essential to my own modern Korean life, a coffee shop. And he gets involved <laughs> in a rivalry with another cafe called Moonschild, which is known as the best in Yurim, this shindoshi, where everything takes place. And he sends his girlfriend to a roasting class held there in order to learn its secrets. That girlfriend turns out to be Hyeri's cousin, and her involvement in a hit-and-run incident is what eventually entangles Hieri and Sehi in the saga of Jack the Ripper and Sherlock Holmes. Okay, but surely you'd think people would sense that something was up if Jack the Ripper were running their local coffee shop. You would think so. But we have an explanation for that. Uh, There are two kinds of vampires. Those who kill humans to drink human blood, like like Jack the Ripper does, and those who rely on other sources, like Sherlock Holmes does. Now, it seems that the former come to physically resemble their victims over time, so that after decades of wandering across Asia, Jack the Ripper doesn't really stand out in Korea. Ah, and The okay. author obviously knows a lot about vampirism, but also about coffee, and having worked for years as a barista before turning full-time writer, he gets the chance in the book to incorporate what's presumably only a small fraction of his knowledge on the subject. Well, it seems the author sounds like a man of many interests indeed. His work certainly reflects that. Now, the last book of his I read was called Hangugine Mat. It was a hybrid of fiction and non-fiction about foreign foods that were Koreanized in the 20th century, like jajangmyeon or uh, Danpatang or kimbap even. But he writes or contributes to several books each year. And those of us who write professionally, as I do, have to envy his sheer productivity, to say nothing of his imagination. He's published in a host of different genres, uh, from mystery to historical fiction to zombie apocalypse to books for young readers. The list goes on and on.
0: So he's very prolific, uh, but also very imaginative as well. Uh, It wouldn't occur to just any novelist
5: to bring Sherlock Holmes and Jack the Ripper to Korea, let alone uh, make them vampires. Well, nor could many novelists do it with such an evident sense of fun, and in prose so clear that it's an easy read, even if Korean is your second language, as it is mine. But, you know, what I enjoy most about following a writer like Jong Myung-sop is the surprise of seeing just what direction he goes with each new book. Mm. I couldn't possibly guess what the subject his next one will be, but I can assure you he's writing it even as we speak. It almost sounds like it could be a sort of a fan fiction
0: novel for Sherlock Holmes, but I perhaps think so. of a higher calibre, considering the
5: reputation of the writer? Professional fan fiction, perhaps. And at the very hmm. end, he teases, I don't want to give too much away, but he teases, there may be a sequel to Vampire Sherlock, and it may involve werewolves. Okay, wow. Okay, so there could be more coming. Uh, I wonder, do you think
0: this is a work that could cross over and get an English translation as well? It certainly has a lot of elements that I think uh, would appeal to Western readers. Even the title Mm. alone, I think, would cause people to double-take and look twice.
5: There are many readers in America, I know, who would just, if they know vampires, they know Sherlock... You know, they're, they're interested right away. And though set in Korea, for the most part, this book is not so deeply rooted in Korean history or culture, like some of his other books, that it's not universal. I mm. think this everything, not just the language would translate, but metaphorically speaking, everything about the book would translate well to other cultures. Wherever there are, are genre readers, wherever people know Sherlock Holmes or vampires, I think there'd be an interest. Sure, well, hopefully uh, it can pique the interest of some translators and some publishers in the West as well. We'll
0: see if it does get picked up. Well, we'll leave it there for this week's uh, Korea Book Club. It was uh, quite the pick for your first one uh, with us, Colin. Once again, it was called Vampire Sherlock by Cheng Myung-sep. Thank you for that recommendation, and we'll catch up with you again next month. Thank you very
5: much. Look forward to it.
0: And that brings us to the end of today's edition of Korea 24. Now, tomorrow is a national holiday in Korea, Korean Independence Movement Day. But we will be here mostly as usual with weekly economy review, movie spotlights, and our daily news briefing as well. So we hope you do join us again tomorrow. Till then, we hope you have a great day. I've been your host, Kwon Jang-ho, and thank you as always for listening. Goodbye.
1: KBS World Radio.